if we want to be stable through change, we have to embrace the change. You might have children or partners or animals or health conditions or climate concerns or friends that you scheduled coffee with when the lightning strikes with the perfect idea for paragraph seven. And we often fall trapped to this misnomer, which is once everything is stable, then I'll do the work instead of realizing that there's never going to be that moment. Hello and welcome to Emerging Form. I'm Christy Ashwanden. And I'm Rosemary Watola Tromer. And this is a podcast on creative process. And I'm so excited today because we're going to be talking about change. You know, the constant in life is change, right, Rosemary? <laughs> Do you remember Wendy Vitalock, who we had as a guest on here uh, quite a few episodes ago now, but she has a poem, one of my favorites of hers begins, change is the new improved word for God. that's great and there is you know like we are constantly informed by driven by surrounded with change yeah we sure are and we are recording this in september just a few days after the equinox Mm -hmm. changing of the seasons i love it it's always it's always a special time i don't know i like that kind of change a lot and you know our guest brad stahlberg do you want to say something about him before i introduce him Yes. So Brad is a friend of mine. I adore his work. He's a lovely person. And he has done a lot of writing with a previous guest of ours, Steve Magnus, who was on episode 73. They've actually written two books together. That's something that we'll talk about in the bonus episode. But Brad has a new book out, which is just him. Do you want to tell us a little bit about him? I will. Brad Stahlberg is best-selling author of Master of Change and The Practice of Groundedness. He writes for The New York Times and is on the faculty at University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health, and he lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Western North Carolina. I'm excited to have him on. Welcome to Emerging Forum, Brad. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you could come, and we're excited to talk about change. Do you want to just start, for listeners who have not read your book yet, do you want to just give us the quick and dirty overview of Master of Change? Yeah, so the average adult experiences over 35 significant life changes. Yet we often think (laughs) that change is the exception when in fact it looks a lot more like the rule. Mm -hmm. And we tend to think that change is something that happens to us instead of us being always in an ongoing constant conversation with change. So I'd experienced a lot of changes in my own life in a relatively compressed period of time. Pandemic was in full force Mm -hmm. when the kernel for what became this idea popped into my mind. And I distinctly remember being in the kitchen on my wife's iPad in somewhat early 2021 and reading all of these headlines about when are things going to get back to normal. Mm -hmm. Uh And it occurred to me then that maybe this back to normal thinking wasn't so helpful, nor the most accurate fit model of change. And it started this exploratory journey that became the book. I love that framing so much. And Brad, this whole notion, it's sort of an ongoing theme throughout the book that change is not some weird thing that happens occasionally, but that's Mm -hmm. kind of our constant state that we're always undergoing change. And we have this idea that there's a stasis that we can get to. But the truth is, 
That's kind of an illusion. And it just reminds me so much of this thing that I hear creative people say again and again. And in fact, I've said it myself, you know, and usually it takes the form of like, oh, after next week, you know, things will settle down and like (laughs) everything will be back to normal. And like, then I can get my creative work done. But there's kind of this sense, right, that like at some point there's going to be sort of this even keel that we will get to and everything will just be, you know, whatever we want to call it, normal or unchanging. But you're kind of saying, no, no, let go of that idea. Am I right? Yeah, you're you're 100% right. And it comes down to a dichotomy of what the research community would call homeostasis versus allostasis. Mm-hmm. So homeostasis comes from the Latin root homo, which means same, and stasis, which means standing. Mm-hmm. So it says that mm-hmm. you achieve stability by staying the same. So that's the, mm-hmm. the, the pipe dream of, well, when everything is the same and everything stays the same, then I'll have the time and space to get to my creative work. Mm-hmm. Whereas allostasis, which I believe is a much more accurate, better fit model for change, comes from the Latin root allo, which means variable or change, and stasis, which means standing. So it argues that the way to achieve stability is through change. Ooh. And it has this beautiful double meaning, which means that if we want to be stable through change, we have to embrace the change to achieve that stability. And I think that when it comes to creative work, um, that is so true because you not, even even full-time creatives, you might have children or partners yeah. or animals or health conditions or climate concerns or friends that you schedule <laughs> coffee with when the lightning strikes with the perfect idea All for right. paragraph seven. And I think <laughs> that um, we often fall trapped to this misnomer exactly like you said, which is once everything is stable and everything is calm, then I'll do the work instead of realizing that there's never going to be that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is so interesting to me, Brad, because I lead these book proposal workshops and the whole purpose of them is to help people get through this process of writing the proposal. And again and again, I see this thinking and I want to be clear, I fall into it too, but this idea of once I get through this thing, then I'll get to it. And what I found is that the people who succeed and who complete their book proposals are the ones who, they're not less busy in their lives. They don't have less going on. They don't have other things, but they're really, really committed to the project and they're they're pressing on on despite all of that other stuff. Mm-hmm. I would agree. It's not to say we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I yeah. do think there is real value in having some boundaries and protecting time to do deep focus creative work. But I also think that you can shift your mindset around that and say that you can do creative work outside of those deep focus times. So I can't tell you how many ideas for essays or chapter titles in a book or newsletters, you name it, come during my commute, Hmm. come when I'm walking the dog, Mm -hmm. come when I'm at the gym, come in the shower, sometimes come when I'm playing with my kids. And the answer for me has been really simple, which is just carry a notebook everywhere. I once heard an interview with Atul Gawande, the surgeon and wonderful medical science writer, Mm -hmm. talk about how he never writes his books sitting down in a desk. He writes his book on these voice memos throughout his day Mm -hmm. because his creative practice is simply his life. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that if you have that reframe, you kind of get out of your own way with this thought that I'll have my perfectly clean writing desk and my perfectly clean writing room and I'll set the yeah. incense candle and I'll be able to go on retreat and write for six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've had people come on the show and tell us about the writers of retreats they went on where they didn't write a single word. So we've, we've kind of debunked that notion pretty well. <laughs> Well, I love this phrase that you use. It's one I use a lot too. In fact, so much that my daughter teases me a lot about it, but it's in conversation with. So when you say that we're in conversation with change, just talk a little bit more about what that might look like. Yeah, I think that when it comes to change or disruption or chaos, people tend to fall on one or two extremes. Mm -hmm. And I think One of those extremes is the, I have full agency. I can problem solve and fix and control this situation. Yeah. I can bend the world to my will (laughs) to achieve the result that I want. And I'm going to call that like the agency extreme. Yeah. And then the other extreme is this is so overwhelming. There are so many systems and structures that are so much bigger than just me. I can't possibly do anything that is going to contribute in a meaningful way to the outcome of this. So I am just going to kind of feel overwhelmed and in an extreme hopelessness and and despair even. Mm -hmm. And I think (laughs) that being in conversation with change realizes that for 99% of people in 99% of situations, there's a chasm between those two extremes and the hard work of being a mature adult is trying to exist in the middle. Mm-hmm. You're right. And I say trying because it's really, really, really hard mm-hmm. to, to, to exist in the middle and to try to take the agency that you have and use it without putting so much pressure on yourself and telling yourself this story that you can't control everything because of course we can't. Right. So it's, it's, it's having a back and forth, having a conversation mm-hmm. with the world around you mm-hmm. instead of controlling mm-hmm. it right. because no one yeah. likes to be in a conversation with someone that is controlling or instead of just kind of going mute and letting it all happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. The other phrase that you use often that I'm really drawn to is this rugged, flexible mindset, which is full of paradox. And I'd love it if you would explain what this is and how it can help creative people. Mm. So. When we're encountering uncertainty, change, just the the chaos of life, you can be really rugged on the one hand, which says that you're strong, you're determined, you're durable, you're going to stick to your plan. You are not going to sacrifice that time that you had to write or to make music or to do the outline of your theatrical performance come hell or high water. You're going to do it. Or you can be super flexible and go with the flow and not really make any plans, have very loose, if any, boundaries, and kind of just try to get it in when you can. Mm -hmm. And in my research and reporting for the book, I found that people that are really good around chaos, disorder, um, change, which is to say life, right? Because life is change. (laughs) Right. (laughs) um, They also don't fall to either of those two extremes. They're both rugged and flexible. So the ruggedness is your core values or your priorities that are really meaningful to you mm-hmm. that you will not let go of regardless of what's happening around you. Mm-hmm. And the flexible part is then how you achieve those core values or how you practice them or how you act on them needs to be very much adaptable and flexible. Mm-hmm. And I think a beautiful example, and it's an example of an organization that did this, 
but I think that it applies to us as individuals as well, is the New York Times. Hmm. So whatever you think about the New York Times editorially, we'll set aside. Uh-huh. But the New York Times as a business was really the only newspaper in the last 20 years to withstand and perhaps some would even say thrive amidst the really sad contraction of yeah. the print newspaper industry. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is the New York Times, their core values have not changed in mm-hmm. that period, but how they apply them has. Mm-hmm. So nowhere in the New York Times core values does it say, write a print newspaper delivered on people's porch step. Right. What it talks about is excellence, craftspersonship, reporting, truth-telling. And the way that they do that has had to be really, really fluid and flexible. And in my reporting for the book, I talked to people at times, now they no longer even mention the print newspaper as a front door to the wow. New York Times. They talk about the newsletter, the website, and the podcast network. So not even wow. the written word. Interesting. So I think it's a good organizational example of having these core values, but then practicing them flexibly. So at the individual level, what does it mean for a creative? It means, well, defining, if you value creativity, what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. Does it mean that you are producing? Does it mean that you're consuming? Does it mean that you're having time that is quiet? Does it mean that you're going and immersing yourself in the arts? Like, what does it mean to be a creative person? Mm-hmm. And why do you care about that? And then once you have that definition, then being really flexible and how you seek out to actualize it as things ebb and flow Mm -hmm. over the course of one's life. Thanks so much for listening to Emerging Form. We want to give a big shout out to a couple of our paid subscribers who have left us really kind reviews on iTunes. For instance, Jill Berkey, who recently wrote... Wonderful. I love this podcast. I feel like I'm among friends when I listen to Christy and Rosemary talk about the creative process. One day, Rosemary shared a new poem that moved me, and I knew I had to start being a paid subscriber then and there. Thank you, Jill. (laughs) Rebecca Reynolds-Weil wrote, Amazing! You will laugh and grab a pen at the same time. This is a fantastic rollicking soup of humor, depth, thoughtful and practical suggestions, and rich creativity. The two hosts are a joy, and they wrap in wonderful guests to add to the discussions. Subscribe and share this delight. What a gift. I love that they both added subscribe to other people. That's nice. I know. Isn't that sweet? Thank you so much for your support, dear listeners. You make this podcast possible. And if you want to join Jill and Rebecca, you can sign up as a paid subscriber at emergingform.substack.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that's so interesting, Brad. And it just reminds me, um, Rosemary and I gave these TEDx talks and mine starts by, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm hearing on NPR a description of the book that I, my agent had just literally called me that morning to say it's dead. You know, we sent it everywhere. No one wants it. You know, no one wants to buy this book. And I was so devastated because I worked so hard on this book proposal. I really poured my heart into it. These ideas and the stuff in the book was really important to me. But in the end, it turned out that it was no big deal that I didn't sell the book. And I mean that very genuinely. I realized that what mattered to me was exploring these ideas and getting the word out mm-hmm. and and being able to do that. And I did that in so many other ways. I wrote multiple magazine articles. I was interviewed. I was interviewed on NPR about, about this work. And so in terms of like, what were my real core values? What was my purpose? What was I really setting out to accomplish? Because in fact, it wasn't a book per se. You know, I think there's a lot of pressure with writers. Like there's this feeling like you need to write a book and you sort of have to write a book to be a real writer and all of this. 
I don't buy into that, obviously, but I also think that this sort of mindset you're talking about can be so helpful for navigating the parts of the creative process that are out of your hands, right? Like, I can control the work that I'm doing. I can't control the marketplace or the opportunities necessarily that come to me. So keeping that mindset that you're talking about can be really helpful, right? Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways to talk about this, right? There's focus on the process, not the outcome. Mm -hmm. One of my intellectual heroes is the 20th century philosopher and psychoanalyst, Eric Fromm. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the difference between a having orientation and a being orientation. Mm -hmm. In a having orientation, you define yourself by what you have. So I have this book, I have this house, I have this money, I have this award, I have this bestseller list. Yeah. And Fromm said that that makes you really fragile mm-hmm. because all those things can easily be taken away and can change on a dime. Right. Whereas a being orientation, you define yourself by who you are. So it's much more the verb. So I am a writer. I am a creative. I am someone that values ideas and sharing them. Mm. And that is so much more flexible and so much less fragile. Mm. And I think it's very easy for us creatives to get swept up into the having mindset. I have this many followers on Instagram or Twitter or now TikTok, whatever the latest platform is. I have this book deal. I, I have these sales. And these things can be important if you make a living doing this. But I feel firmly that once they are the majority of the motivation or the majority mm-hmm. of your mind space, you're setting yourself up for a lot of distress and potentially burnout. I I like to take it even a step further because I like what you say about, you know, what am I and all of that. But I think that can be a little bit fraught, too, if people become so tied up in identity. You know, I am a journalist or I am insert job title or people covet a particular job title. I really like to encourage people to think in terms of doing. What are the things that I do? I report, I write, I think, I speak. And then it's those actual doing, the action verbs. Those are things that you can control. Yeah, I like that. That segues really nicely into the second part of the book on a rugged and flexible identity. Yeah. This has been really mind opening mm-hmm. for me and many early readers as well. And it's this notion that you don't want to just identify with one thing mm-hmm. because when that one thing changes, it can be very discombobulating. Yeah. So the metaphor that I like to use is if you think of identity like a house, and if you've only got right. one room in your house, and that room catches fire, Mm -hmm. um, you're in trouble. It's going to be really, really, really disorienting and unsafe. Whereas if you have a couple rooms in your house and one room catches fire, you can go seek refuge in those other rooms while the fire works itself out or while you solve the issue. And I think that when it comes to our identities, if we only have one room in our identity house, whether it's writer or athlete or parent or um, <laughs> spouse or physician, mm-hmm. attorney, whatever it might be, well, then when it's time to retire or when the kids leave mm-hmm. the house or when your book proposal is called a dud, <laughs> yeah. it's an attack on your your whole self. Right. Yeah. Whereas if you have other rooms in your house, then it takes a lot of pressure off and you can go seek refuge in those other rooms. So nothing has made me a more free, I don't know if it's made me a better writer, I'd like to think so, but it's certainly made me feel more free as a writer than investing a lot of time in my family room, Mm -hmm. in my athletic room, and in my neighbor room. Because none of my neighbors care that I have books. I live in a small Western North Carolina mountain town. They just want to listen to Jason Isbell on the front porch. (laughs) And when things don't go well in writing, 
I am so glad that I can have wins and affirmation and meaning and value in those other rooms. Mm-hmm. So I am not a proponent of going all in on just one thing. Yeah, I think that it it makes you have a really fraught relationship with that thing. And most people don't do their best work from that fraught relationship or that pressure on your on your shoulders. Mm. That's really well said. Yeah, it is so much pressure, yeah, to have that. I like too the way you said though when you were talking about who you are, you know, as you're as you're looking at this being orientation, you say I value ideas, which isn't a having or a doing yeah. <laughs> or, or an amming. It's not it's a, it's a valuing, which is an amming, the being, I suppose. <laughs> but, you know, it just to say, what do I value? And I think that's a really beautiful way to think about it too. Yeah. And I think that you all are demonstrating this and I, I'm not just doing this to patronize <laughs> you at all, but like, I think that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast and you're both not just writing books all the time or writing right. essays or whatever it is. It's a very flexible way to be creative and to live in the world of ideas. Mm-hmm. I don't know you as well, Rosemary, as I know Christy, but Christy's workshops that's another expression of creativity. And I think it just makes you so much more rugged and flexible because, yeah, you might have a stretch where for all sorts of circumstances that are out of your control, a book doesn't hit. Yeah. But you have these other outlets to maintain that creativity, which is really the thing that makes you tick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if the thing that makes you tick, and it's I, I know what listeners might be thinking is like easy for you to say, you're talking about your book. <laughs> but if the thing that makes you tick is the idea of a hardcover book with your name on it, like you are just going to be disappointed. Yeah. Because even if your book is number one on the New York Times bestselling list, it doesn't solve your problems. Yeah. It doesn't make you whole. Two weeks later, you'll wonder why it didn't sell even more copies because that's just how the human brain is wired. Yeah. So I think it's just like, it's important. You can want it and yeah. you can care about it and it can be a goal that you want to strive for, but it should never be the primary thing. The primary thing should be like what makes you curious and what lights you up. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, you know, we talk so often on this podcast about following your curiosity. Brad, I wanted to ask you about something that really struck me in your book. You have some questions that you pose to readers. And one of them is, what parts of your life are you holding on to unrealistic expectations? And I think that's a really good segue to what you were just saying. And I wonder if you can talk about Mm -hmm. how this affects creative people, especially in the sort of context you're talking about. You know, you have a book coming out and you have such high expectations. How do you manage this? Well, psychologists like to use this off equation that your happiness at any point in time is a function of your reality minus your expectations. Hmm. So if your expectations are a lot higher than your reality, you're not going to feel good. Yeah. And I think that in the creative world, what has happened in no small part, I was going to say thanks to the internet, but really because of the internet is our comparison point Mm -hmm. is no longer the people in our community of a yeah. local newspaper, our comparison point is everyone else in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and the stuff that reaches the top of the internet is the stuff that is the most commercial, that did the best. That's why it's at the top of the internet. So mm-hmm. it used to be self-publishing a book was good enough. Getting an agent was good enough. Getting a book deal was good enough. Getting a book deal at a big publisher was good enough. Having that book sell a thousand copies the first week. And now suddenly... It's so easy to compare ourselves to, I need to be the number one New York Times bestseller or it's a flop. Mm -hmm. And if you have that expectation, you are never going to be happy because virtually no one hits that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I really think the the internet is like an expectation 
escalation machine and it's really dangerous. It is. I love that. And this assumes that people are acting in good faith. Right. What about all the people that like buy their own books so they get on the top of the list or airbrush, you know, how beautiful they look or whatever it is. (laughs) So not only are you comparing yourself to the cream of the crop all the time, but you're comparing yourself to often uh, airbrushed cream of the crop. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that it is really important to try to have accurate expectations and Mm -hmm. Uh, a common retort that, that that readers will write me about is, are you saying that I shouldn't strive for excellence? And I don't think that's the case. No, I think that you can have high expectations of yourself and of your work, but the expectations about the reception mm-hmm. of the general public to your work or about where it's going to stack up, ideally, they shouldn't be low. Ideally, they should just be like non-existent. Like the work should be the win. Yeah. However... We're humans and we operate in an ecosystem where there are um, things that we can compare ourselves to. And I just think it's important to like really try to hold on to, to accurate expectations. And if you can't, be kind to yourself Yeah. and realize that like that's how the human brain is wired. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I caught myself, you know, oh, like this book was a, a national bestseller, but not a New York Times bestseller. And I was frustrated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the worst thing I could have done was judge myself for being frustrated. Right. Yeah. But I just kind of laughed at myself. I'm like, here I am. Like, even I, who wrote this book where expectations <laughs> is a big part, is getting caught up in this. Yeah. And I can be kind to myself. I can laugh at myself. I can order Thai noodles for dinner and wake up the next day and get on with my life. Yeah. I think there's so much power, too, in just recognizing it and being really honest with ourselves because it's okay to want, right? It's okay. And we may know mm-hmm. that that's unrealistic. I mean, we can't all be the number one New York Times bestseller, right? Because there's only one each week. And so, you know, understanding that that's the case. And I think the other thing that happens is that once you succeed, you know, once you've won a race, once you've been number one bestseller, there's nowhere to go from there but down. And it's sort of like this new set point where in a way it kind of really sucks to succeed because then like, how do you keep going? It sucks to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's probably a hashtag Christia Schwinden Instagram post. Right. But no, I mean, I do hear what you're saying. And I think hitting the peak of a mountain is often like there's a reason that people experience the post-marathon blues. Yeah. Because you've been yeah. working towards this goal and you've been thinking about this goal and then you do it. And now like there's a dissipation of purpose or of a goal. Um, but this gets back to like, do you define yourself by the outcome or by what you have, or Mm -hmm. are you an athlete? And if you're an athlete, like you just keep going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to get real because conceptually all this stuff makes sense, but when the rubber meets the road and it's your proposal that's getting rejected or your book that's not selling well, I think sometimes like people can say, oh, just non-attach. Like, no, that's BS. Like most of us humans do attach. And to your point, it's okay to want, it's okay to feel frustrated. And I think the consolation is just knowing that it's a part of being a creative. Yeah. Is you are going to feel frustrated. And in those moments, I think the most important things to do, reach out to other friends that are creatives and go on your soapbox and let them say, oh, that was me last year. Yeah. Um, go into some of those other rooms in your identity house mm-hmm. and derive meaning and have some wins there in those other rooms. Um, and then come back to doing the actual work itself. Like there is no better therapy yeah. for a post that didn't go viral, for a book that didn't sell, for a proposal that was rejected. Then figuring out a way to actually do the creative work, whatever that means. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. Just do the work. Just do the work. Just do the work. You know, I love too that you brought this word kindness in, uh, and that and that kindness to the self as we're yeah. as we're meeting with our own disappointments. And I think this is going to have to be our last question. And it's this, um, and we've touched on it a little bit already. But is there anything you learned about yourself while writing this book, and maybe especially as it regards to being rugged and flexible? Oh, there's, well, there's so much that I learned mm-hmm. about myself writing this book. Um, I think the main thing is that just the importance of continuing to never close doors to the important rooms in my house, mm-hmm. even when I want to. And I want to unpack this for just a minute here. I'm not arguing for quote unquote balance. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we should spend the same amount of time in each room or that each room should be the same size. I'm just simply saying like, you never want to completely shut a door to a room that's meaningful. Yeah. So the practical example here that I don't think I had done as well in my prior books, but I did really well in this book is launch week and to an extent launch month, but really launch week. You want to go all in on your book. You want to spend a ton of time in that room to give your book the best chance of success. You want to write all the essays and guest posts and newsletters and podcasts and interviews and on and on and on. However, I made sure that I still went to the gym three days that week without my phone. I made sure Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. as much travel as I did, there were still three family dinners with my wife and kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I made sure that I still sat on the porch one night in Western North Carolina with the little speaker and listened to music. And what I might have lost in blog posts not written or, you know, two radio shows not done, I gained when my book wasn't a number one New York Times bestseller and I was frustrated well, I had the the stability and the buffer afforded to me by my parent identity and my community identity and my yeah. athlete identity mm-hmm. that made weathering that small storm a lot easier. So I think it's mm-hmm. just acknowledging that we're never going to be balanced if we care deeply about our work. And there are going to be times to really go all in. Yeah. But just make sure that you never shut those doors to the other rooms completely. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a good answer. That's such a great answer. And it feels like such a nice note to end on of just maintaining yourself. You know, there yeah. are so many times in a creative project where you really do have to go all in, but you can't completely lose yourself. And that that's sort of the trick you're talking about here. Yeah. And carry a notebook everywhere. I mean, the way that my the way that my brain works is such as I mentioned earlier, like I'm kind of always doing the work. Yeah. And sometimes it's in inopportune times, like during dinner with my family. Um, <laughs> and over time, I've had to learn that like there are ideas that you just let go. Like you can't yeah. just stop every dinner to write some stuff down. But occasionally, like lightning really strikes. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to have to go to your office and pull up your computer. You also don't want to resent your family yeah. for playing with your kids when that happens. Have a notebook, jot it down, and then direct your attention back to what's in front of you. And then the irony is you come back to that notebook the next day and like 90% you, yeah. of the ideas are garbage. But <laughs> in, the, in, yeah, in the moment, true. they sound yeah. great. <laughs> always, always, yeah. Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I'm so excited to continue on with the bonus episode that our paid subscribers will hear next week because we have many more questions to ask you about your creative process and writing this book. And this is your fourth book, by the way. So we're going to be asking you all about that and the differences between them in our next episode episode. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to getting into the process questions. You've 
you've been listening to Emerging Form. This is Rosemary Watola Tromer, and my co host is science writer Christy Ashwanden. Our fabulous audio producer is Leah Shaw. Our music is created and performed by Kira Kopostansky and edited by Leah Shaw. Kate LaRue designed our logo. Jack Mueller, of course, inspired our work and the name of this podcast. As he always said, you must obey the poem's emerging form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Emerging Form. Did you know that for just a few bucks a month, you can become a paid subscriber and get bonus episodes every other week? Go to emergingform.substack.com to sign up. And if you really want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.